0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. This week on Meet and Three, we're sipping on stories about how access, legislation, and circumstance affect what we drink.
2: I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero proof and alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing.
1: This plant's been around for millions of years, and uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre American. Uh, that just should have a very prominent place in our society, you know, for a lot of different reasons. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. Tune in to Meet and Three. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Dan Keeling and Mark Andrew. We'll talk to Dan and Mark about all things noble rot and wine from another galaxy. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Brits Dan Keeling and Mark Andrew found a bond in wine that would lead them to create a wine magazine, two restaurants, and a book to talk about it all. Dan had a successful career in the music business, while Mark became a master of wine and worked at a leading London wine merchant. Dan Keeling and Mark Andrew are Noble Rot Magazine, Noble Rot Wine Bar, Noble Rot Soho, and authors of recently released the Noble Rot book, Wine from Another Galaxy. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Dan and Mark.
2: Thanks, Sam. Lovely to be here.
3: All right, so we're talking to Dan and Mark nice to meet you finally we're talking to dan and mark uh the three of us are on uh zencaster on three different connections where are you guys right now are you in england we're in uh, london in queens park which is just north of notting hill okay
4: yeah uh, mark lives at the top of the park in the uh, nice bit and i live in the kind of uh horrible bit down the bottom
3: Hey, you'll get there one day yeah, all right my street's, so, gone, my street's gone bad because of lockdown <laughs> anyway sorry no because you because you moved in um <laughs> yeah. all right so I, you know I, i'm more than assuming that you know a lot of people are fans and subscribers of noble rot the magazine a lot of people have you know gone in and out of your restaurants and people are starting to read through the book that being said you know I, I think a lot of people still don't know who you guys are and you have interesting stories and i don't want to take a ton of time but take a few minutes to tell me about your journey in life and wine you know that got you to where you are today which is this whole noble rot thing um mark do you want to start
2: yeah sure um well, I grew up in Manchester in in Northern England, and you know, I, I was I grew up in a, a, a working class family, but you know, with a father who'd uh, who'd done quite well for himself despite his modest roots. And my dad was a, a wine drinker, not a connoisseur ah. necessarily, not a, not somebody that talks about wine and thinks about wine, perhaps in the way that we do, but certainly somebody who appreciates a good bottle. And it was through him and, and my stepmom that I actually first even drank a glass of wine when I was in my early twenties. So it was, you know, it wasn't wow. part, it wasn't part of my upbringing at all. Um, you know, it was much more beer and cocktails where I grew up. Um, right. But thanks to, thanks to my dad and my stepmom, I, I started to take an interest in wine. And then when I moved to London, really it, it all got unlocked from there. I, I started working um, at, a, at a music industry pub where probably Dan and I's paths might've even crossed even though we didn't know it at the time. And it was it was at that place where uh, my love for food and and certainly for wine really blossomed, and they encouraged me to uh, to to take an interest and take some sort of control over the wine program there. And it was it was from there that I decided that I needed to make it a full time occupation. So I moved into the wine industry with a a wine merchant that um, was not too far away in West London in Kensington, and I. I started working in retail there, as many people do, and before too long i was uh, I was the head buyer and had uh, was getting the opportunity to travel all over europe and to uh, to buy wine from auctions and from private sellers and and from all sorts of other interesting places and as part of that job, I started to to put on wine tastings, which um, were really an opportunity for me to taste the wines that I really wanted to drink and the things I was reading about in the books and you know and, and sort of fantasizing about getting the opportunity to to enjoy. And so I started this program of wine tasting events, really as a method to to do that. And that was where Dan and I crossed paths for the first time properly and um, and became now friends. two things.
3: What year was that about? <sighs> Oh, that's a good oh, question. We were talking
4: th- about this the other day. I think it was about 2007, 2008.
3: Okay. All right. So that, that was uh, over a decade ago. So, mm-hmm. Mark, yeah. you're so, at so- the Merchant. You're doing you know, all these things. You meet Dan. We'll get to that in a minute. But where does the MW, where does the Master of Wine come in?
2: Because so that's a time-consuming I- thing. It is. Yeah, it is. And I, I started doing that while I was working at this wine merchant. Um, I was a wine buyer and it's really, it's kind of part of the natural progression uh, to go through the different um, qualifications, the WSET qualifications and so on, that are sort of the professional exams that you do. And most people, I suppose, would call it a day after the the level four WSET. <laughs> right. Um and, yeah, call me a sucker for punishment. I'm not sure. I I I felt like I had a bit more left in the tank, so I pressed on and, and went for the Master of Wine. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's, uh, it's also an opportunity to meet a lot of great people, and uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. And, thankfully, yeah. it didn't take me too long.
3: It's pretty serious, though. All right, so... Um... Mark, you brought me up to the point where you met Dan, which is where I want to be. Because after I get a little background on Dan, then I want to take it from there. Dan, your background's a little different. You know, Mark grew up around wine and, you know, worked through the industry. You came from a different path. Tell me about it.
4: Well, I'll work backwards because we've got to the point where we met. But I think we met around 2007, 2008. And that was just as I changed jobs and I'd left EMI Parlophone Records and started at Island Records as MD and uh, there was a great wine shop next door called Roberson, and that's where we met Um, I used to go in there and uh, Mark and I would uh, talk about wine and became really good friends started the magazine but prior to that I've just been getting into wine and to tell the truth up until my late 20s You know, I used to drink wine, but what I thought of as wine is very different to probably what I think of wine now, Um, you know, much more kind of industrially produced commercial wines. You know, I would watch television and see these uh, these, uh, self-professed experts, you know, telling me about all these flavors in a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon and I'd drink it and I would just not know what they were going on about. But I kind of knew there was something in it, but I, I hadn't quite seen the magic. I hadn't had that penny that dropped yet. Um, So when I moved from EMI to Ireland, great wine shop next door, had a bit more disposable income, didn't have kids at the time. And, you know, it kind of ignited in me this kind of similar kind of interest that I had in music. Um, You know, so many details there. Uh, It's all about your senses.
3: You, you, You can equate the two?
4: Yeah, I mean they're both transported kind of of experiences. Yeah, they take you somewhere else. They take you out of where you are. And the the best music is uh, a bubble, like the best wine is a bubble. That you know when you're with it and when you're you're kind of inside it. And I would say the same about a restaurant as well. That that's a bubble. So, yeah, that was my my journey was um, a late one, but maybe quite a lot of people of our generation got into it a bit later.
3: Wait a second, you humble bastard! Um, while at the label, um, it's not like you were just teetering around. I mean, you had the opportunity to sign Coldplay, which is certainly a significant band the last decade or so. Right. Yeah. And you also left the Beatles label. I mean, Parlophone was the early Beatles label, I think.
4: Yeah. I mean, I saw, yeah, I signed Coldplay to the uh,
3: Beatles label.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, which is, you know, people should know that about you. Um, when you, I, I want to ask you, you know, what drew you guys together? Obviously it was wine, but was there a, a connection beyond that? I mean, were there, you know, similar sensibilities on how you approach stuff? And then, you know, when did a common vision material materialize as far as, you know, the Noble Rod idea, which was um, the magazine first? Did you first, um, Dan? Did you transition out of music entirely, or were you working, you know, both things at a point?
4: No, I was working in both things for a while. Uh, Twenty thirteen okay. is when we started the magazine, and I think what we had in common besides a love of wine was, you know, sense of humor. We had a similar sense of humor. You know, we're both into football. We both. You know, we were both a little bit tired by how the, my, the wine media portrayed wine. Um, it just didn't really appeal to us, so we kind of felt that there was a, a, a bit of a gap. G- give, me a quick,
3: give me a quick, give me a quick sort of take on how you thought they were covering it then.
4: Well, a lot of the wine magazines would talk about wine as if you were tasting it in a laboratory. You know, not with food. You know out of context in a way and that that was kind of probably one of the main things also the language that that was used was a little bit highfalutin and sometimes quite pretentious that didn't appear either so we wanted to try and talk about wine in the same way that you know you would talk about an album or a gig or you know just a normal kind of everyday you know not to dumb it down at all because you know we are like i'm sure you are sam you're in awe of wine and that's what we want to do we want to celebrate wine but you know a lot of um wine literature isn't celebratory it's just a bit boring
3: but mark isn't that you know by going through the whole masters and the court program wasn't that sort of what that was all about
2: no no well I, i suppose everybody takes out of it or puts into it different things depending on on who they are but, no, I'd say that's unfair, really. I, th- I think it's a very broad church and there's a lot of different types of people. Um, but that. actually, w- one thing that you don't encounter in that too much is um, is a big thing that was very, very much of the time that Dan and I met, which was scores. And this, this mm. you know, the it's still with us, of course, but this was really the heyday of Parker and you know, when i was working in the store there i used to have customers that would come in with a printed out list of scores and they they weren't interested in the in the 2001 or the 1999 lynch barge they were only interested in the 2000 vintage and they'd never tasted right. you know they never tasted anything and and weren't really sure what they were buying but they'd been told by some greater power that it was the it was the wine that they should have and so that was really a culture that Dan and both Dan and I were were not particularly keen on, and we were much more oriented towards um, Kermit Lynch's way of thinking. And you know, he wrote right. the book uh, "Adventures on the Wine Route," which both of us had read independently and absolutely loved, and were very much of that mindset in terms of of being producer uh, oriented, but terroir driven, and looking for authenticity, and you know, and and really caring about the the details behind the wines. Um, the art the artistry behind the wines rather than just you know uh, a, a great vintage with a big scoring wine and and a high price and so it was it was kind of as we were both coming at it from that perspective and I suppose with Dan's background in music you know it would make sense that he was looking at it from a more artistic perspective and you know from from my I was just sick to death of having to deal with people. Who had a one-track mind that was just scores driven. So right. the two of us sort of came together with that, and we, we, we had that in common. And we, there was one tasting in particular that Dan came to that I'd put on from um, of the wines of Grange des Pères. And I think I'd quoted Kermit Lynch during the spiel of, for the tasting. And after the tasting, Dan came to me and said, ah, oh, I've just read that book as well. It's absolutely brilliant. And that was a bit of a bonding moment for us, I think.
3: The Rodders road trip part of the book rings very much of Kermit Lynch which is, you know, terrific. So when I asked you, you know, when did a common vision materialize? The the way you viewed wine and everything was very similar. So what happens? You take it upon yourselves to say, hey, we could do this. We could do it better. How does that seed get planted?
4: Um, Dan? Yeah. I mean, before I got into music, I, I, I used to write for music publications uh, Melody Maker, which is the equivalent of NME, um, Jockey Slut, which is right. like an electronic music magazine in Manchester. And I used that as a way, you know, I loved writing, but I used it as a way to meet people and it really opened doors. So I kind of, I think I might have suggested to Mark, why don't we do a kind of fanzine-y type thing? But that's kind of what the thought I probably had in my mind would be to to have this as a not just a a magazine for a magazine's sake, but it's about an ethos and it's about, you know, you meet so many people and, you know, it has got a kind of community around it as well of contributors, artists. So, but back at that stage, we had no idea how it was going to go at all. So we we did this, the first issue, which was, it's kind of a bit like a pamphlet now, but we had, you know, Mike D from the Beastie Boys he uh, he did an, our first interview. Stephen Harris, who's my cousin-in-law, who uh, owns and runs and is the chef at an amazing restaurant down in Kent called um, The Sportsman. He did a recipe. Uh, Mark wrote about the blackmail at DRC. I kind of matched wines and records. And we just got off to the races because we just thought you just have to kind of get on and do something almost before you're ready. Um, At least that's the kind of uh, ethos I've always subscribed to.
3: An eclectic array of stories, you know, all somewhat wine-focused but different perspectives. Um, The new issue just came out, I think, the end of last week, and I think you've maintained, you know, that variety, you know, uh, still eclectic. I think the people that now write for the magazine are, you know... Very famous, cool, um, you know, the growth from then to now, if I look at it, it still remains true to the vision, but it's gotten bigger and better. You know, what would you say?
4: I'd right. say so thank you very much, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, after 25 issues, uh, seven years, you know, we're very lucky and very fortunate now to have this pool of people Because one person leads to another and, you know, over time, the the quality of your writing gets better and over time the quality of your illustrations do. But I think the one thing that we we really wanted to add to our kind of writing about or coverage of wine was context and context with the creative arts, context with restaurants where wines are, are drunk and also context with food and, you know, just life. Um, and I think we, we still do that. And the humour side of it is very important, as well as the knowledge thing as well, which, you know, although earlier I was yeah. saying, you know, we were tired with a lot of wine literature, obviously, there's so much important stuff that, that, is, that is about how, you know, um, different appellations are that need to be passed on from generation to generation. And as the kind of, as some wines become blander and a bit more kind of international in style or whatever you want to call it, it's really important to, to remember the kind of nuances and the characters of all these different places around the world, of which there are many more every year, or it seems, certainly seems to be as more wine regions come back on stream.
2: Yeah. I think what we try and do is, is be celebratory, don't we? We try and reflect the, the joy that we have in drinking and talking about wine. You try and get that into the much page of the magazine because, yeah. like Dan says, there's so much information that's, that is interesting and that is important to communicate. But, you know, you have, to, you have to not lose sight of the fact that wine is this incredible, joyous product that, um, that ultimately brings people together and is there to be celebrated.
3: I, you know, I think when you brought up Parker earlier, I think he brought two things to light. I think he put a lot of focus on scores and he also pushed wine to that over the top, unctuous, fruity thing, you know, which became mm. a thing for a while. I think things have now gravitated towards people are interested in the stories about wine you know, they'll find the good wine, but they want to know more. And I think, you know, Noble Rot magazine, you know, approaches that, you know, from a lot of different ways. Um,
2: One of the things that we always talk about with the magazine is try and show, not tell. And I I think, you know... yeah, when, good point. When you when you're communicating the about the the stories and the the people and the backdrop and all of that context that Dan was talking about, I think it's it's really important to kind of open a open a, a window for people to to look out onto, rather than preach at them about what it is that they should be drinking and what what exactly what it tastes like and why why this and and why the the next thing, you know, you have to you have to have a conversation rather than it be something that's uh, that's a bit more dictatorial, which Preachy. I'm not naming names, yeah. but we try definitely yeah. to avoid that.
3: Well, to that point, I'm surprised you only do three issues a year. I would think this would have been the year where you two lazy guys sitting around doing nothing all year could have maybe launched a third or fourth edition, you know. <laughs>
4: have how you tried homeschooling, Sam? No. I, 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 oh, I, I forgot my kid, about that. I'll drop my children over to your house and uh, we can get home with the four Okay. <laughs>
3: Do you feel that you can get much more depth and quality, you know, and less issues than having to worry about, you know, chucking it out every couple of months or even more than you're doing?
4: Yeah, I can only imagine what it's like to do it every week or every month. It's, you know, it's just a completely different thing. And, you know, we're covering wine and gastronomy and a bit of music and creative arts, but still it'd be hard to keep what we're doing, it's hard to stay true to those points that you outlined earlier for the magazine. It'd just be impossible to do. And because we've got the two restaurants and we've got our wine import company, and we're in the process of setting up a shop as well and a retail, um, there's only so much that we can do. And it just feels that we'd rather keep it at three issues a year and just make sure that they're they're top quality than doing six. But, you know, there's a a bit more filler in there.
3: I agree with that. You know, people can't wait for the next issue. Um, I have to ask you about something that it's hard not to ask, especially, you know, you guys, because, you know, the diversity of what you do and just what's been going on in life is, and the question really is how has, you know, life been during the pandemic? Um, You know, we just talked about you released a current issue of Noble Rocks, so that's going on. I think I read you opened a second restaurant during the pandemic. Um, Plus, you know, you're kicking a book out. Um, Those are good things. But, you know, let's get behind the curtain a little. You know, having restaurants that open and close, I think are currently, how has life been during the pandemic? You know, each each of you can sort of give me a perspective on that.
2: Um, It's been tough, you know, as restaurateurs. I don't think there's uh, any restaurateur in any country in the world that's been impacted by the pandemic that would say, it's been a walk in the park over the last 12 months you know we've been right. closed for i think 6 or 7 months out of the last 12 um i think in fact it might even be 8 months in fact by the by the time uh, April. by was talking tonight so you know we've got more of it to come yet we'll be we won't be open until may the 17th and Ooh. You know that's yeah, it's really tough. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. But we're not the only people who are going through that situation. Many businesses in many uh, many different sectors have have had to you know. Uh, take the the pandemic and, and everything that's been thrown at us. I suppose in the UK, to some extent, we've had um, support from the government. Certainly, we've been able to keep all of our staff in jobs, thanks to the furlough scheme. So that's something which for both Dan and I, right at the very start of this whole thing, that was a particularly stressful uh, element of it, was making sure that we kept our team intact and that we kept everybody, you know, um, financially uh, solvent uh, and thankfully with the government's help that's been possible so yeah i mean we've we've had a pretty rubbish twelve months and yeah. as a result of that we're very much at the point now where we're we're doing our uh, level best to look forward and to and to remain as positive as we can because when we did get Soho Open, which you referred to there, which, which was in the middle of the pandemic during a brief hiatus in the, in the lockdowns. Um, it, was, it was wonderful. And, you know, we had a great response. We had a lot of, uh, a lot of very kind words said about us in, in newspapers and, and, uh, and on social media. And we're really excited about reopening the doors of both of our restaurants so that we can get back to what we do best, which is trying to make people happy through the medium of great food and great wine.
3: Right. So, so Dan, no Jeopardy, or did you get close to, um, you know, the businesses being in Jeopardy? Or you were able um, to plan it out and endure?
4: I don't know about that. Um, you know, everyone's had a tough time, you know, restaurateurs yeah. are just one part of the world, and the world's had a shit year. So that's what it is. You can't change it. You know, if I was going to look at the positives um, over the last few months, you know, opening a restaurant in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, we lucked out in some <laughs> ways because we opened at a point that gave us six weeks a consecutively open where we had the critics come in, where we had all our friends and all of our readership and our audience came in and a lot of repeat customs. So it, it kind of pro- it proved itself as a, as a restaurant that was, uh, you know, a great place to be. Whereas if we'd have been open for two weeks and then shut, none of that would have happened. And it would really feel like going back to square one and starting again when we right. open in May. The other thing was we're in an old historic building called the Gay Hussar, um, which is a real old uh, hangout of particularly Labour politicians. You know, it's had uh, past uh, prime ministers have been uh, among its customers. But it's, it was a, it's an old building. It's old Soho. <laughs> And there's a lot of uh, characterful things about it that we, you know, having the building only half full because of restrictions gave us a bit of an opportunity to see how it could work. And I think if we'd have opened Mm. without COVID and it had been a big success and we'd have been full, I think, you know, we would have been playing catch up and you can't always give your best level of service in many different ways when you're just slammed. So I think there's been, there's been ups and downs with this. I mean, obviously, it's cost the business a lot. It's cost everybody a lot. But I think there's a real yeah. pent-up uh, hunger and thirst to get out and celebrate life when, when we get going again. So, yeah, you know, when you're in lockdown, I'm sure everybody has good days and bad days. And some days you wake up and you think, oh, God, another day you wake up and you think, great, the, the sun is shining, the world is brilliant. So, we'll, you know, this will be a yep. distant memory before long and we'll just get on with it.
3: So let me, I'm going to ask each of you this question and you could only pick one. All right. What do you miss most? Do you miss the traveling? Do you miss being around that environment of a lively, bustling restaurant? Or do you miss just buying tons of wine and tasting it?
4: I miss the conviviality of other
2: people.
3: (laughs) So that's the restaurant being able to go. Yeah. How about you, Dan? Dan.
2: I i that that was Danny. Um, oh,
3: I'm sorry. I had it back.
2: <laughs> no problem. I think um well I would I would agree with Dan. The the thing that the thing that for me has been the biggest miss is the is is energy the energy that you can draw from the people around you. And we're really blessed at Noble Rock with a great team in both of the restaurants and and because of the nature of our work, because we're in service and hospitality, um, and we have a really great team, there's so much positivity when you get to work. And you know, of course, Dan and I do our best to to try and promote and encourage that. Um, but when that gets taken away from you, I that's the thing that has left the biggest hole for me. I think it's just yeah. it's been the the anticipation. Um, of getting to work and the excitement of of the next service and the the atmosphere, people. the crackle of energy that people bring to yeah. the to the restaurants and and yeah, so that that would be the thing that I've missed most definitely.
3: So you guys said you're opening in May. I thought you can open mm-hmm. uh, in April. No, that's only if for you're...
2: outdoor dining.
3: Ah, so you open in May, and is it limited seating indoors, or you go back to?
2: Yeah, we'll go back to um, to what the same restrictions that we had last summer effectively so we'll probably be operating at circa two-thirds capacity um and until June when we shut down again (laughs) No, no don't don't say (laughs) that
3: Dan. um that'll include outdoor too indoor and outdoor if you can right
2: yeah, but, you know, as much as we would love to be somewhere that could boast a big outdoor space, our, both of our it. restaurants are in old old London. Yeah. And, you know, ours, as I mean, we think it's the greatest city in the world, but one thing it's not geared up for is that kind of outdoor cafe culture. Um, yeah. it's, it's just not that type of city. So we are in the same boat as many people, which is uh, hanging on until indoor dining is allowed in May. So
3: last pandemic question, um, how long do you think it'll take you know, to sort of get back to a feeling that feels right. You know, what both of you conveyed, you know, the energy, the people, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent, but I know people, are, like you said, be chomping at the bit to get back out and, and have a good glass of wine and be with friends. But, you know, when do you think by the summer, by the end of the summer, I mean, do you have high hopes that things return to some normalcy?
2: The, the talk is that full restrictions will be, all restrictions will be lifted in June, June the 21st, I think it is. And at that point, we ah. will, be, will be allowed to trade as normal. Like Dan says, anything could happen. You know, We could end up locked down again. Let's hope not. Let's, let's, uh, let's be positive about it. So on that basis, we wake up the following morning and our restaurants can go back in terms of operations to how they were before. And I am absolutely convinced that we will be full from that moment on. Yep. I think you're right about that too.
3: I think people want to get out and I think more than anything, people want to get to a place like yours. So I think you're lucky for what you've created. Um, guys, we got to take a quick break. Um, we're talking to Dan Keeling and Mark Andrew. They are the guys behind Noble Rot, which right now is a magazine, a couple of restaurants and a brand new book, which we're going to talk about when we come back. You're listening to the Grape nation on the heritage radio network.
1: This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along, a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, houseplants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com.
3: Okay, we're back. We're back with my guests, Dan Keeling and Mark Andrew. Um, I want to talk about the book a little, um, but that kind of intertwines everything you're doing. So, you know, we could take it anywhere. Um, The book is called Noble Rot, Wine from Another Galaxy. Um, Quickly, I read the book. I loved it. It's a mixture to me of rock and roll, which is no surprise, Dan. Pop art. Um it's definitely irreverent to me, but it's incredibly accessible. It's informative and you know it's practical. I mean, I, I'm not the wine expert, but I've been around it a lot and talked to the best people, and there are many things in that book that, you know, I took note of or, you know, things that I want to do. Um I mentioned earlier, you know, the Kermit Lynch thing, the Rodder's Road Trip section is off the charts. You know, it's just well written, mates. Um So I enjoyed the book. And just to my listeners, I don't say that about every book because I didn't have to have these guys on. You know, I had them on because I love the book and I love what they're doing. So I'm not praising every book. I really like this book and I recommend you guys um, going out and buying it. So the first question you always have to ask is, you know, how and when did the idea of the book come about?
4: Um, gosh, when did that come about? We were introduced to our agent through a mutual friend. And, uh, you know, I think this must be issue 12, 13. And he he kind of said, well, why don't you do a book? And it took a while for us to to get the idea, uh, to formulate it, to come up with a title and how it was going to kind of come together. But um, it was probably two and a half years ago that we first Thought of that and, um, yeah, it took a couple of years to write, you know, commission artwork. We had a lot of photographs already from our travels and uh, taking away really amazing photographer friends of ours with us. You you know, we we cover a lot of it. The idea was
3: planted in your mind or... Like you said, somebody came to you and said, what about a book? It wasn't
4: really... Well, you know, in some ways, it's not such a big leap from a magazine to a book. And, you know, some people right. might say our book is quite magazine-y in how it's divided up into sections and, you know, the look of it. Um, so whether it's a book or a magazine, we just wanted a, a way to convey this, this uh, you know, the magic of wine, celebration of wine culture, you know, our take on it. Um, And, you know, over the course of quite a lot of magazines, you you, you gain in confidence and you kind of formulate an idea. And only by going to a lot of these places did the idea finally come together, by going to Ribera Sacra, by going to Gredos Mountains. You know, these are all places that, like, like everybody else, that you see on a bottle of wine. But until you're there stood in the vineyard, they're just abstract things. So going there and meeting people like Daniel Landy, or Envignate, or all these amazing kind of people yeah. who are all are similar similar age to us in other countries yeah. who all had kind of similar things in common, whether that's a love of music and food and wine, then the kind of story kind of came together a lot more. So, yeah, that was how it came together.
3: You know, I said earlier the broaders Road Trip section seems like the largest section of the book. Um, you know, that that became an important part of the book. I mean, you were, um, Mark, you were traveling to meet winemakers, taste wines, you know, even before the idea of the book, right?
2: Well, yeah, we, the first time we went away together was to the Jura, which was back in, I think it was issue four, um, that we, we traveled together for that. And that was, you know, I was still working at the wine merchant. Dan was still working in, in music, and we were we had our project on the side, which was taking more and more of our our energy, and, our, and certainly was the thing that we knew we we wanted to to throw ourselves completely into. But it was it was the first time we'd had the opportunity to go away together, and then it has obviously grown from there to the to the, where we are now, where we try and go away at least once um, for every issue, and every now and again it's it, we can squeeze in a bit more travel than that. And of course yeah. the travel is is for the for the writing without doubt but it's also about um about informing our jobs in a broader sense you know it's it helps us to buy exciting wines for the wine list and it helps us to find interesting producers to import for our distribution company so you know there's the, the travel is, is really, really important. And it's also incredibly enjoyable. And all those things that Dan said before about really getting to understand a place, getting under the skin of a place by being in situ and by being yeah. able to breathe it in. You know, it's it's really important and we're very privileged that we get to do it regularly. And so in a sense, it's kind of then a responsibility of ours to allow our readers to, to experience vicariously what we get to experience.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I felt that way. Um, Let's try to sell a few books here. I mean, you guys realize in the past few years, very credible people in the wine business have written books, not exactly, but of a similar nature. You know, there's a how to section in this book, and obviously, you know, the travelogue. Um, what, and I know this is a goofy question, but you got to answer it. What makes this book unique? And a must read for people interested in wine. I think people interested in Noble Rod and know you guys, you know, will get it. But, you know, how can I get other people to, you know, really want to pick this? Because that's how I felt when I was done with it. You know, I just thought it was terrific.
4: Well, uh, you know, I, I hope that that people are entertained by it. Because um, this kind of, um, you know, we're trying to convey the that's knowledge. That's fair, of, of, Dan. of of wine but
3: that's fair because of the stuffiness of yeah
4: um and also uh, yeah entertainment a sense of humor um what was the question again i've forgotten the question
3: well you know what makes the book what's different about it but unique and a must read you know for people i think you know entertaining you know i think you know it's not a stuffy book um what else do you think
4: Yeah, it's just art. It's just a very personal take on wine. And it has a sense of humor. Not everyone's going to get that humor. Some people won't like it. Some people might might hate it. But it's just a very personal take on, on what we love about wine at the moment. And at the moment, it is one of the best times ever for wine, you know, to be able to go and discover all these kind of new or old new regions in that you know they had vineyards years ago that have been kind of taken on by a new generation so i don't think you're necessarily going to get that from from many other wine books at the moment maybe you are um maybe i'm talking rubbish actually maybe there's loads of other good no
3: no 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 no, that uh, you're you're right about that um
2: one of the things I would somebody- say is is that there's there's obviously you mentioned there's a lot of other wine books out there there's a lot of great wine books I mean you know just to to take one example, Jane Anson wrote a brilliant book about Bordeaux this year, and that's a book which many wine lovers will have on their shelves ourselves included but it's a right. very different type of book to to what we're what we've sought to to put out into the world because you know there are reference books and there are books with lists of uh, of hectares and uh, right. and plantations and all manner, manner of different technical information Soil
3: composition exactly
2: yeah, yeah. you know yeah. that's all out there and there's some fabulous examples of that but like dan says the the noble rock book is a very personal affair it's 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 the world of wine sort of seen through our noble rock colored lens and what we hope is that people will find it entertaining enough and insightful enough in in maybe slightly more quirky and interesting ways than some of the more conventional books um, and that they'll like you said before they'll they'll take things away from it that they can you know they can make note of and hopefully will help them next time they're they're uh, they have the joy of of being in a restaurant with a restaurant wine list in front of them or Right. Or when they're building a cellar and they don't have too much money to do it and they want to they discover something a, a more interesting and, and uh, contemporary way to do that rather than the old classics that are now very expensive. So, you know, that's what we hope that's, to bring. That's a, that's a very so, so good was... point, actually.
4: We, we, always, we, always, you know, we always talk about having takeaways for people, that people can read an article, read a magazine, and come away and take something away from it that they learn and they can use in the future. I mean, we're very fortunate to be able to work in wine and food. Food and restaurants and by virtue of the, the people that we meet and who we talk to we pick up so much and it really is our job to convey that to people but convey it in an, in an entertaining and insightful way insight is really important because you can tell somebody facts but if you can't give them that little bit of insight about what makes something different or a wine different although you know I don't know quite what makes it books different all the time in, in regard but do you know what I mean
3: Well, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and I think the book is sort of a multi-use book, because the how-to section is almost what I was referring to when I said, you know, other people have written, you know, books. I mean... Uh, mark the Bordeaux book is not a how-to book but it's a very specific book about Bordeaux but the how-to section is really your take on you know if you want to collect people are intimidated when they go into a restaurant and how to order all that stuff is there language all of that and then you know there's the travel log you know which I want to talk about in a minute and you know a very entertaining slant on it you know so I was going to ask you how do you want people to use the book and I think I answered the question I mean it's a reference it's Stories. It's a travelogue. Do you agree?
2: Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, all those things are true. But ultimately, what it comes back down to is this idea of of um, of celebrating the the joy and the and the That's happiness important. that wine can bring. And you know, yeah. for us, um, all of the knowledge and all of the learning that that we get to to partake in as our day to day life. And all of the wines that we taste and all of the, the places that we go, you know, none of it really matters if you're not enjoying it. And none of it is really meaningful right. if it's if, if you can't use it to enhance your life. And so if somebody reads uh, the book and and just takes away a couple of things that they can enhance their wine drinking with, then, you know, we'll be really happy that we've we've done some of the job there. I think they will.
3: Um... You know, I mentioned you traveled extensively. I'm curious, and I know the travel was for the business and for the magazine. Um, You know, how did you figure out where you wanted to go? Um, You know, was it based on favorites, the wine personalities, Um, you know when you started traveling why did you wind up in places that you were at was it just curiosity I I mean tell me a little about that because I don't know how many profiles there are there are dozens and dozens and dozens in the travel section so how do do you get to those people yeah I I think curiosity
4: is the the key Um, you know we started off in the Jura on issue four back in 2014 and we went to um, Paule de Vangione or Percy de Vangione which is this mad festival they have between two villages which right. is outdoors in, in mid-February so it was just raining, oh, it was cold um, but you know we love the Jura, it's, it's a really interesting place, very different to other wine regions but but really the, the latest issue of the magazine we written about Chianti and I really you know but, I, an,
3: I, I, I but was, a newer I was, slant on it though
4: Yeah, and you know what? Younger
3: winemakers.
4: Yeah, which we didn't know before we went. I mean, we liked wines like La Pagola Torte, um, and I really wanted to go to see Montevettini. But from there, we learned about all these other producers and were able to go and visit them, and from there, the story kind of formed itself. That's kind of like how the book formed as well. You go to a place because you're curious, because you've tried a wine, because you think, wow, that's a bit different or, you know, blows your mind or, you know, and you, you want to go and discover who's made it, what the vineyards look like, what the land is like, what the food is like. And, you know, it's just a, we're very fortunate to be in a job that, that, that we can do that and we can convey that to other people after. So that's how.
3: Was, was Kermit Lynch a blueprint in any way? I mean, was it an influence? Yeah, I mean,
4: in in terms of his philosophy on on wine, you know, broad brushstrokes about how it's made, Um, you know, the thing about Kermit's writing is that he he writes really well, and he's got a sense of humour, and he's very opinionated as well, but he really chimed with us as the kind of wines that we like, you know, not overly made wines. Uh, wines that, you know, value finesse maybe over brute power. And, you know, you were talking earlier, Sam, about this big kind of fruit and, you know, the Parker-esque kind of wines. That's not really what we're into. If, you know, if you put 82 Lynch Barge in front of us or 2,000 Lynch Barge, we're going to go for the 82 because we like elegant, restrained wines. Um, And You know, Kermit's portfolio of of wines, it typifies that, you know. It's one of the best in the world, if not the best, I'm sure.
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, the range of people you talk to, um, I, I mean, goes from very, you know traditional to very you know new and all that i mean the juror is old but it's new in a way to a lot of people um which is you know kind of crazy
2: um i think a lot of the best wines and and wine domains and the most interesting wine regions are that combination of old and new there there are sort of a there's there was this period in between that was maybe a little bit more technology dominated, um, which we perhaps find a little less interesting. And um, what's, what's been really exciting about the the last generation of, uh, of winemakers, the sort of the last 10, uh, 15 years maybe, has been this return to that spirit of authenticity and and artisanal methods and terroir-focused um, wines that are, are, like Dan says, a bit more built for finesse rather than uh, shock and awe tactics. Um so you know those those are the wines that we love and we're really we're delighted that this this contemporary movement, if you like, of uh of wineries and, and domains and they're very much more of that old school kind of ilk. Um so, so, so Mark, a nice connection there.
3: What you describe is and I think there's a common thread here, you know, uh vignerons, low intervention uh, you know, farming, that is probably, you know, nothing added. I mean, th- that's that's a common thread, right? I mean, I don't want to use the word natural, organic, biodynamic, but all those practices are in most of the wines, right? Yeah,
2: well, some or all of those terms might be applicable to, to many yeah. of the, the wineries that we feature. Um, you know, viticulture is something that Dan and I are very, um, that we that we think is very important, you know, people should farm responsibly and sympathetically to the land, and they should certainly be seeking to, to leave it in a better place than they found it. And that goes across food, agriculture, and, and absolutely everything else. Um, and so there's no doubt that wineries that are, uh, that are, that have that in their, in their DNA are perhaps more attractive to us. But that aside, you know, we don't spend too much time, um, stressing over ethos, um, of of wineries in 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 terms of being completely you know on one side or another what we appreciate are artisanal methods and people who are you know authentic people looking to make authentic wines wines that reflect the place that they come from um because if not then you can you can replicate the experience with a wine from anywhere and that's that's no use to anybody really we wouldn't get to travel quite so much if uh, all the wines tasted the same everywhere
4: it's also well, it's important being... to say that our wine list and the magazine, you know, we will have Jean Francois Ganavat on the on the wine list, but we'll also have Haute Brion. And, you know, Haute Brion is not made or certainly wasn't made, no. you know, in in the eighties and nineties and classic vintages with organic uh, viticulture. And, you know, it was probably made with um you know, added yeasts and stuff. So, but you know, right. we we love wine. So it's if, the best it, of wine, the best of classic wine, the best of some of the natural wines, uh, and we like to to approach it in that way, like more eclectic than a lot of almost, other restaurants.
3: It almost seems snobby to have a natural wine only list. It's as snobby, you know, to. Uh, exclude an Opry or you know, any of the other first growth Bordeaux, you know, like it's that. It's two sides I, of the same coin, them. isn't it? It's about, you know, the people that come into your place and what they want too. You know, you have to serve them. Um, this is, you know, this is like asking you, you know, uh, Dan, who's your favorite kid? Um, but in all these stories and traveling and meeting people, You know was any one or two regions or people you know such a surprise or so much different than you thought or way more enlightening i mean are they all good or there's you know one or two in there that you know are just somewhat unforgettable
4: uh you know i'll use the example of the of chianti um because it was an area that before we went you know, I, I knew a little bit about it, but I had no idea that there was so many interesting uh, younger producers. So right. you know, when you go somewhere like that and and you meet these people and you taste the wines, and for me, a lot of the wines, the best wines, had something about them that I also love about red Burgundy: this this kind of delicacy and sensuality. Uh, and to find that kind of uh, in Sangiovese, which I had found in the wines of Soldera and Brunello de Montecino, but to find that in Chianti as well, as well was a real eye-opener. So we were blown away by that trip, and that was yeah. back in October last year. So it can happen no matter where you go.
3: Recently, yeah. Um, Mark, anything come to mind with you?
2: Yeah, well, a couple of things come to mind. One which I'll just touch briefly because it's very similar to what Dan just said. But we a couple of years before we were in Brunello di Montalcino, and the visit that we did to Soldera was—I mean, we knew the wines were wonderful. Um, we'd, we'd enjoyed the wines before we uh, before we made the visit to to the Domain. but the the level of, of perfectionism and the commitment that they have to making the very, very best wine. And it's not a commitment that's manifest in technology. It's not a commitment that's manifest in, you know, in expensive tasting rooms and barrel rooms. And it's a commitment that goes right down to them discarding the berries that are too small as well as the berries that are too big. So they don't want a concentrated wine. They want a perfectly balanced wine. And, you know, those kind, that kind of commitment to to the the quality of their wine was really breathtaking to to see and experience so that was a really that stayed with me without doubt um but yeah. another visit that i absolutely loved um and I, I think it's probably one of the most informative visits to any winery i've ever been able to do um was when it was another trip that Dan and I did to the Jura. Um, and we, we, you know, we saw Ganova and we saw Labé, and we saw all of the really wonderful uh, artisanal producers, all of which we're, we're completely enamored with, but we also visited Stefan Tissot. And even though his winery is a bit larger, perhaps in terms of the, the amount right. of wine he produces than some of those other names, um, Stefan is, is absolutely dedicated to the terroir of, uh, of the Jura. And, It was really, it was a masterclass, spending an afternoon with him, um, not just in the vineyards where we learned so much, but then also tasting the wines with somebody who is very, very intelligent, incredibly good at communicating about the differences of his terroir and his wines. So that was a really wonderful visit too, and one that will live long in the memory.
3: Yeah, he does make great wines. Um, I want to do this thing called the wine list, but before we do that, um, at the end of the book, you compile... uh, rot 100 wine list which you know seems to be the wines that you know move you guys the most how how, how did that come about was that just emotion or the last thing you could remember or a lot of science how did you compile your list of 100 wines
4: a uh, lot of agonizing you know you think about wine <laughs> moving you know, things around <laughs> well why are you going to put a wine in there is it something that you know was a special moment uh, a place that or someone you drank it with or you know so it was it really it, that that list could be different for both of us on different days i'm sure but they're just some of the most memorable yeah. bottles that we've drank a lot of them we, we drank together as well um but yeah that's how
3: so so a year from now you'll look at that list and you, you won't <laughs> cringe like you'd look at your high school picture or something
4: that would just be thinking god i can't believe we drank that
3: rubbish yeah all right all right guys I do this thing called the wine list and I do it every week with all my guests done over a couple hundred of these and it's basically five questions I ask everybody the same five questions about your wine preferences and I couldn't think of better guys you know to ask these questions to Um, answer quickly you don't have to fixate on them don't dwell on them I need an answer from each one of you so the first question is what are you drinking now What's in the fridge? What's on the table? What are you experimenting? What's changing seasonally? Give me a couple things you're drinking now. Dan, you go first. Um, In
4: the fridge at the moment, I've got a lot of different wines by an estate in Karlstadt in the Faust in Germany called Müller Ruprecht. And it's a winery that we've just taken on to import very fortunately because the wines are just superb. Uh, the winemaker is a protégé of Klaus-Peter Keller, um, possibly, uh, you know, well, arguably the best winemaker in, in Germany, up there with
3: Egon Müller and a few others. But these wines, they're... They... Spell for me, R-U-B-R-E-C-H-T, Ruprecht, or...
4: R-U-P-R-E-C-H-T, Ruprecht, Müller-Ruprecht, yeah, Um and these wines, they, they have real weight and power to them, but they're, they're like Keller wines. They're, they're super precise. Uh, and, it, you know, we Good tasted one. about 10 different cuvées uh, and they're screw caps, so it's been very f- fortunate that we can drink them over a number of days to see how they develop. But, you know, it's no coincidence that he's worked for Keller. He's also worked at Liger Bel Air, so yeah. his, uh, his CV yeah. of places is a second well, to none. So Well-trained yeah and that was for a tip from a friend of ours in new york called soil pimp actually um, so that was a, that was a that was great wines yeah
3: what about uh,
2: what about you mark um at the moment in the fridge i've got a bottle of allegote from um David Chappelle and Michelle Smith. Um, they're obviously in Beaujolais, but they've uh, yep. they have just done a new sort of ghost project on the side. So I've got a bottle of the Aligotte to taste, which I'll probably crack tonight, which I'm looking forward to. I've All got right, some um, Santa Ban uh, from a producer that we started working with recently called Lamy Kayat, which is a tiny micro domain in uh, chassan Montrachet. The wines are off Still the charts for me. So Lamy is L-A-M-Y, Why? and then Kayat is C-A-I-L-L et i think it's et oh yeah okay 80 80. all um, right those are good
3: ones I, give yeah, me yeah sorry i was just going to say drop.
2: one other that i've got is uh, i've got a bottle of which i'm i'm literally about to get stuck into a bottle of uh Nausa from uh domain dalimara in northern greece which is one of the best value wines anyway i know
3: you, you love find. greek wines um <laughs> Alright, like I said, I'm going to post these Second question the goofiest one On the list, but it plays into you guys Because you're big wine, food, and restaurant guys So each one of you Give me your favorite wine and food pairing Not something you necessarily Eat every night, every week Every month, but something that you know Is just a great wine and food pairing Not what you think people should eat, what you like
4: Well, every go September
3: first.
4: Do you want me to go first?
3: Yeah, Dan, go ahead
4: um, yeah, well, I definitely don't eat this every day because you just couldn't. But I love grouse and I love corn ass. Um So when it gets to September, I start thinking about you know when 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 can we have a dinner and invite friends and get some old no- northern Rhums, maybe some old Burgundies as well. But for me, grouse, grouse, and corn ass is good. It, yeah, yeah nulverse no cornas and a grouse that's not too well hung you know i kind of like it mid-season rather than right at the end of the season but they kind of overlap and yeah it's just something quite you know amazing about that combination
3: that's a good one um that may be the first time anyone's given me that combo people have given me cornas, but nobody's ever given me grouse or grouse and cornas. what
2: about you mark Um, mine's probably a bit more cliche than that, um, because no matter,
3: you're not allowed to say champagne and oysters on this show. No, no,
2: I wouldn't. Although as much as I do love champagne and oysters, but no matter what wonderful food and, and drink pairings I enjoy and grouse and Cornass is definitely one of them. Um, I just can't shake, um, Roquefort and Sauternes. Um, especially really good mature so turn from a from a proper mm-hmm. vintage and then roquefort Roque is a delicious cheese but there's there's um, a version of roquefort called regalis which is um is sort of the is the artisanal answer to uh to the larger produced roquefort so if you can give me a slab of regalis and a nice bottle of mature chem, i would be a very very happy man
3: now how do you spell regalis is it r e g a l i s yes regalis? exactly yeah. okay All right, so those are good ones. All right, third question. And see if you can help me with this. If you don't want to answer, you don't have to. If you can, if you think it's inclusive. I would think that you would be on a lot of people's list if I asked them this question, your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. So now I'm asking you guys. You probably don't get out much because of the nature of your business and all that, but are there other people... uh, in town in the states you know that just do it well they got the vibe they got the list they got the knowledge they got the people anything come to mind dan uh, well,
4: for, for, for wine lists people who've got the knowledge i would say marco pelletier at ventre in paris um marco is a friend of ours um we import. marco's uh, been on the show of, yeah so he, he makes a fantastic wine at Domaine de Galushi. And also, yep. um, we his uh, Michel Gonnet Champagne that he works with is our house champagne. Yes. But when you go to Avanture, you know the guy's knowledge and the depth of his cellar uh, are brilliant. So he'll pull out things that aren't super expensive, and you know if you ask him to do some blind tasting, you know you'll get some really special bottles that um, yep. for not like loads and loads of money. Um, so that's good. Also i love i love villa mass as well down in uh, near girona in catalonia and i don't know if you've been there sam but it's the most perfect set no. on the beach and uh carlos no. who's the guy who's built up the wine list is i mean the wine list is spectacular it's you know amazing Burgundies, uh you know not silly prices the food is just absolutely off the charts Palermos is the next, one well, the next town along, where the prawns, the famous prawns, come from. So mm. you just get the most amazing seafood with the most amazing white Burgundies on the beach, and I can't think of anything it sounds better almost, than that.
3: It sounds perfect. Yeah. Um, Mark, give me a couple. Can does anything come
2: to mind? Yeah, well, there's one place which probably during lockdown I've thought about more than anywhere else. Okay, and, and that's the one. Dan and I try and get there uh, every time we're passing through um, Paris. We always try and adjust our Eurostar time so that we can take in a long lunch at La Tour d'Argent. Um, uh, because I answer. know, I know it's, I know it's a, a classic and I know it's, um, it's an expensive restaurant, but in terms of the value and the range in their I would, you know, you can call it a wine list if you want, but it's, uh, it's so monumental that it, that I don't think that really covers it, but their, <laughs> their cellar is unrivaled in my experience. And still, every, right. Oh, it's incredible. And every time we go, we, we get a bottle of something that we didn't dream we'd be drinking for half the price that we thought we'd have to pay for it. And it's quarter. the most, yeah, a quarter yeah. of the price. And it's so- perfect provenance. And, you know, the view across the Seine, absolutely wonderful. So that
3: leads into my fourth question, which originally was favorite all-time wine. And when I set out to ask that question, I assumed that I would get answers of people's rarest and most expensive tastes. I kind of don't give a crap about that anymore. It's kind of morphed into what's that wine that had the biggest impact on you that's the most important um, you know, life-changing or whatever. And, you know, to a lot of people, it wasn't the most expensive or the rare, you know. It was like their first time in the drawer or tasting a Brunello. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan, what's, what's that one wine, one or two wines, you know, that have just remained important to you?
4: Yeah, I mean, I'll go back to this kind of crossover between uh, Burgundy and Great Sangiovese. And the, the, the best wines I've had that they've all transported me to a completely different place. And they've been very sensual and they've been very delicate, ethereal. You know, Freddie Mounier, Les Amarous, Mark and I opened a bottle at the end of ah. lockdown last year and it was an 08. It was very, very light in the glass, almost a rose, but it was it was just absolutely perfect in that there was, you know, it was total harmony. I found that Do same harmony. you remember harmony. the vintage year? that was a 2008 so it was still quite young but it was oh, it was just okay. you know the pure the purity of that wine i find that same thing in ligere Belair wines and when i'm fortunate enough to drink them on my 40th birthday we had 2002 la Romani, which was again it was it was spherical in how it, it, i just pictured it in my mind as like a, a sphere because it was just completely in harmony and then the other wine that does that to me, but it's an Italian wine, and I never knew that Italian, a red Italian wine could blow me away like that, was a Soldera. era. So if I think about my ultimate wines, my desert island wines, I'm, I've got one foot in Von Romani and one in uh, Brunello.
2: Those are good ones. Uh, Mark? So the wine that I keep coming back to in terms of those benchmark wines that kind of change your perspective on right. things and, and inform yes. the the rest of your kind of wine life if you like the one that was probably one of, among the most important for me, it was a bottle of 1999 Ramonet Chassin Montrachet and it was, I I opened it in, it must be around 2005, 2006. And it was actually, I was actually at work and I'd been working in wine retail for a couple of years. And I'd come to that job and I'd come to wine in general very much as a red wine drinker. I think quite a few people will probably follow that path. And I, I remember, I mean, later on, I, I read in, in Hugh Johnson's um, autobiography, uh, he said, Many people presume that the the first duty of a fine wine is to be red. I don't believe so. And that really <laughs> is, is kind of where I was at before I opened that bottle. And it was actually, I was pouring it at a tasting. And I opened the bottle about half an hour before any of the guests arrived. And the wine just took me to a completely mm. different place than any white wine I'd ever tasted before. And... I spent the rest of the night pouring the wine, talking to guests and so on, but I could not shake the impact that that wine had had on me. And thankfully, when we got to the end of the event and all of the guests left, there was still half a bottle of the of the second bottle that we'd opened. There was still half a bottle left. So I got to sit and luxuriate in a proper glass of it, and it changed my perspective on wine forever. It showed me that white wine can be just as um, as as complex and as detailed and as layered and as, and as memorable as great red wine Come?
3: Mark, that's how you answer that question. Okay. <laughs> Hit it on the nose. All right. Last question. And we're running out of time. Um, so I ask everybody, Suggest to me the best wine around 15, 20 bucks, 15, 20 pounds, 15, 20 bucks. My kids are in their mid-20s. They can't afford to buy crappy wine and bring to a dinner. They can't afford a gift for 50 bucks, maybe 20. Um, Give me a red. Give me a white. You can give me a category like Muscadet. You can give me a maker. But what are the best values in wine out there?
4: Well, it's funny you you asked Sam, because in in the new issue of the magazine, I've written about exactly this, which is how to build a cellar for less than 500 pounds, or I guess that's the same as $500 nowadays because of the bad exchange rate. But there you go. Not bad for you guys, but bad for us. Um, So by red, I would say um, it'd be a Chianti Classico by Tenuta Di Carleone, which is made by an Englishman called Sean O'Callaghan, uh, I think that there's incredible value to be found in Chianti just because for so long it hasn't been a very cool name. It's been, you know, known for quite clunky, some quite, uh, quite clunky I wines. I agree. And, yeah, so, More um, Psalms okay. are
3: starting to recommend it, yeah. Right, give and, me a uh, uh
4: Well, you know, Muscadet, I would go to uh, Pepier, Domaine de la Pepier yep um which i think you know the 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 value of their wines is absolutely incredible and last year i went to Muscadet and traveled around and uh, went to see lots of different producers and uh, peppier really stood out uh, above the others they've got a more expensive range of wine that is very terroir specific single vineyards uh, so they don't fit the criteria but i had the same feeling there that i had years ago in burgundy for the first time where you stand in a barrel cellar and you taste from uh, barrel to barrel and they just taste different to each other so, you know there's so much definition yeah. between the different crews but their entry-level wine which is i don't know how much it is in the states but it's very very affordable is just super it's in the, the teens
3: you know it's yeah. like 16 18 bucks mark great wine give me a red and a white yeah
2: um, well, my red choice, I'm going to go with a wine that we, we mentioned briefly a little way back, which uh, is the Domaine de Gallucci, uh, Van de Jardin, which Marco Pelletier is yep. uh, is behind that project. And, you know, we, we're... We sell a lot of this in our restaurants and it's a perfect restaurant wine, not just because we can serve it by the glass because of the price point, but also the thing that's really exciting about it, I think, is that when you get somebody who comes in who is a real claret drinker and they love their claret and, they're, you know, their old school, um, you know, Poyac or whatever it might be fans, we can pour this wine for them and say, you know, this is a new take on Bordeaux. This is an interesting sort of slightly left field example, but it really ticks their boxes in terms of of satisfying their claret-based desires. However, a lot of people nowadays are not into Bordeaux and are sort of almost reject Bordeaux uh, out of hand. And I think that this is an example of a wine that because of its credentials in terms of how it's made, because it's a blend of so many different grape varieties, red and white, and because stylistically it is so silky and so beautifully poised, it really can appeal to a much broader base. And so you can, you can kind of bring non-Bordeaux lovers into the conversation with it. And And I, for that reason, it's a really, really valuable I wine. I
3: agree. Doesn't he have to call it a Vin de Jardin or something because it's not a Bordeaux?
2: Yeah. Give me a white. So the white that I would pick is um, from Greece. It's a wine from Kefalonia, and it's, um, it's a Robola called Vino de Sasso from a producer wow. called Sklavos. And it's a beautiful wine, very naturally made, but so pure and uh, and yet so mineral and detailed and also incredible value for money and kind of fits a lot of the description that Dan was talking about with Pépier's Muscadets. You know, it's, yeah. it is very pure and very, uh, very precise, but it is very complex as well. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a symbol of what Greece has to offer, which is complexity, indigenous varieties, terroir-driven wines and great value for money.
3: That's a good one. And like I said, um, I post all the answers. And the reason I do this was selfish for me, but I realized, you know, my listeners can get a lot out of it. There's a lot of discovery and exploration, you know, based on you know, the direction and expertise you guys give to everybody. Guys, I got to wrap up the show. I told you to go quickly. As a matter of fact, we went way over, and I'm going to get a ton of crap for that, but I'll take it, and I'll take it for you guys any day. Let me do a quick wrap-up, and I want to get some info from you. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at com. That's sam at com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook, at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. I know it's confusing, but you could always use the hashtag, The Grape Nation. We just jumped on Clubhouse. We're at BenRuby there. We'll be doing some cool stuff down the road. Um, We'll post, like I said, David and Mark's wine list and any other information that came up during the show worth uh, putting uh, out there. Uh, David, Mark... Um, if we want to find the book, I guess it's available wherever you get books.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's Dan, it's Dan as well, Sam. Um, just okay. to look for it on the author search. <laughs> uh, but yeah, lots okay. of the, yeah, find it on Amazon. If you search David Keeling, you'll get my dad, but you don't want him. You want me. It's Dan Keeling. Okay. Uh, but yeah, on a- a- Amazon.
3: And if we want more information on, you know, Noble Rot, there's the restaurants, the magazine, you know, on the book, is there a central place? Is it Noble Rot Mag?
4: Yeah, go to www.noblerot.co.uk and at Noble Rot Bar and at Noble Rot Mag on Instagram.
3: Okay. Um, And uh, Mark, you're not, are you on social media?
2: No, uh, I've I've made a a decision to to focus my uh, my spare time on my family rather than social media, which is is difficult to do. But yeah, uh, I've I've uncoupled myself from the social media side of things. Good
3: for you. All right. I want to thank our guest, David Keeling. (laughs) David, have (laughs) I been calling you Dan the whole show?
2: Yeah, you have. You have. You have. No, Dan, Jesus. well, Dan is, Dan is what you should be calling him, so... Is I it, is, meant, I had yeah. it backwards. Wait, <laughs> yes, have I been calling yeah. you David? Only no, recently. no,
4: no, no, only, only recently, yeah.
3: <laughs> I don't know what happened here. My notes got <laughs> I just realized then, I'm like, <clears throat>. all right. So, <laughs> no we're talking, I'm thanking... I apologize for that I'm thanking Dan Keeling And Mark Andrew They are the Noble Rot guys They publish Noble Rot magazine They have Noble Rot Soho Noble Rot Wine Bar in London And their brand new book which we discussed Noble Rot Wine from Another Galaxy um, Thank you guys For taking time, thanks for the hour Difference, you know I know things are crazy So I appreciate it um, One last thing before we go off The Grape Nation has been nominated for two taste awards you can go to www.tasterio which is t-a-s-t-e-r-i-o scroll down to the category the best food or drink radio broadcast and check off the grape nation please do this by march 12th i'm sam ben ruby and you've been listening to the grape nation